following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, good morning, good morning again. Thank you for making your way out here. And I don't know, I almost feel like in some sense we're risking our lives for, to worship God and some sounds something very uh, spiritual about that, right? But um, thank you again for being here with us. Um, you know, it's, it's been a difficult year, I think, for, for really all of us. And uh, we just passed the halfway mark a couple weeks ago. It's 2020, right? It's, can you believe it? This has been in a, such a, a unique year. And it started with so much promise. You know, I saw a meme at the, at the, the start of the year that said four reasons why 2020 is going to be amazing. And talked about how all these holidays, like Cinco de Mayo, Taco Tuesday, is actually going to fall on a Tuesday. And Fourth of July is on a Saturday. Halloween's on a Saturday. Christmas and New Year's is on a Friday. This is going to be a fantastic year. And so far, it hasn't really panned out that way, has it? It seems like all the memes that have been coming out these days are really like, what a horrible year this is. What else could possibly go wrong? Like murder hornets or 17-year cicadas. This is the year of cicadas, by the way. They're coming soon. These are, these are difficult times that we're living in, and I think in some ways the stress of these times has brought out the worst in us. Um, you know, maybe it's because it's an election year. It's hard to believe the election's uh, less than four months away. But these days it seems that we're seeing a level of division, uh, of conflict, of angry rhetoric, even violence, unlike anything that I've seen, at least in my lifetime. And I think it's especially apparent when you go on social media, you know, how divided we are as a country these days. And there's a new term that's come into existence the last few years, you may know. It's called cancel culture. Have you guys heard of that, cancel culture? Um, if you're unfamiliar, it's, it's a movement in which a social media uprising can effectively boycott or cancel or shame anything that is deemed by the masses as politically incorrect or controversial or disagreeable or wrong. Even if the offense in question, you know, was committed decades ago. And, you know, I say this... Um, knowing that, you know, some of the things that have been canceled have been really wrong. But it's a bit unnerving that nowadays, without even the full context, without due process, you can effectively destroy a person's life or their livelihood um, really on a whim. And Twitter has become, really replaced our legal system. Uh, this past week, Barry Weiss, who was the opinions and editorials editor of the New York Times, resigned from her position because she felt she was unable to present a more centrist viewpoint at this, you know, long, respected paper without being bullied and discriminated against by her colleagues. And her resignation letter said this, you know, op-eds that would have been easily published just two years ago would now get an editor or a writer in serious trouble, if not fired. If a piece is perceived as likely to inspire backlash internally or on social media, the editor or writer avoids pitching it. If she feels strongly enough to suggest it, she is quickly steered to safer ground. And if every now and then she succeeds in getting a piece published that does not explicitly promote progressive causes, it happens only after every line is carefully massaged, negotiated, and caveated. 
All this bodes ill, especially for the independent-minded young writers and editors paying close attention to what they'll have to do to advance in their careers. Rule one, speak your mind at your own peril. Rule two, never risk commissioning a story that goes against the narrative. Rule three, never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Eventually, the publisher will cave to the mob. The editor will get fired or reassigned, and you'll be hung out to dry. You know, I'm not trying to throw the New York Times under the bus here. You can have your own opinions about, uh, about Barry Weiss and her possible motivations for why she's made her resignation very public. But I think this is kind of emblematic. It's really a sign of the times that we're living in. And it really applies to both sides of the spectrum, how difficult it is to treat people we disagree with with dignity and respect. You know, somewhere along the way, we have lost the ability to be civil with one another, the ability to discuss difficult topics without attacking, vilifying, or condemning one another, or stereotyping someone because of their religious beliefs or because of their voting patterns. And it seems our only options in dealing with those we disagree with is to either shout them down or to shame them in a very public way. And the worst part is that, you know, I think it's become actually very commonplace for Christians to do this. I think many of us have adopted the world's methods in dealing with people that we disagree with. And this is especially apparent when you delve into controversial topics, hot-button issues like white privilege, systemic racism, gay marriage, the LGBTQ movement. And I think in many ways, sadly, we're really no different from the world. Alexander Strauch said this, Some Christian people today who would never curse, steal, miss a prayer meeting, or think of getting drunk respond with unrestrained anger toward those who disagree with them. I think that's sadly a true statement. And this grieves me because I don't think this is at all Christ-like, nor is it glorifying to God when we carry ourselves in this way. Now, how can we be set apart as Christians from this world even when we disagree with one another? How can we glorify God in these days of divisiveness? You know, this may sound very simplistic, but I believe one of the most powerful and profound ways in which we glorify God is by simply reflecting the glory of God. If the world can see God's glory inside us, God will inevitably receive glory. If I could put it a different way, you know, when we were created by God to be His image, to bear His image, we are His image bearers. We were created to shine forth an accurate and faithful picture of who God is, His image, to a broken world. And when we do that, when we shine that picture, that image of God in us to a watching world, it gives God great glory. I believe that's why we were created in his image. But here's the problem. The problem is although as human beings we all have this very unique distinction of being created in the image of God and bearing his image, that image has been distorted. It's been marred by sin and by our sin nature. And so we as humans, we can be walking contradictions at times. You know, the, the same human race, that is capable of awe-inspiring acts of sacrificial love and kindness from our fellow man 
also has this incredible capacity of committing some of the most awful and heinous crimes against humanity. Unlike the rest of the animal kingdom, we have this unique ability to reflect both good and evil because we are created in God's image and yet we are born with a sinful nature. And of course, as I said, God's will is that we reflect his image that we shine forth his glory into the world and to this world. But as God's image bearers, what would a faithful picture of God look like? You know, if you've grown up in the church, you probably know that the answer is almost always Jesus. Right, kids? <laughs> and the answer is Jesus again. What more faithful picture of God can we truly reflect than just reflecting Jesus? When Jesus entered into the world, he showed us exactly what God is like. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Do you want to know, have you ever wondered what the God of the universe is like? Do you ever wonder how he would have acted and how he would have reacted had he lived in this very world, this broken world that we live in? then you need to look no further than the Gospels. You need to look no further than the life of Jesus Christ. In John 14, in the upper room, as Jesus is approaching the cross, his last days, Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father. He's saying, just show us God. Won't you do that for us? And that will be enough for us, Philip says. Just show us God, Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response? He answers, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, all these years, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Do you want to see God, Jesus is saying? Look at me. Do you want to show the world what God is like and glorify him? Then live like his son. Love like his son. Carry yourself like Christ. John 1.14, in our um, call to worship this morning, we open with John 1 and verse 14 of that first chapter of John. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's Jesus. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God displayed through his Son, displayed the fullness of grace and truth. We can't miss this. This single verse, I think, captures so well the essence of God's glory and the essence of who Jesus was. Jesus was a reflection of the glory of God. Jesus was God, and Jesus glorifies God. What does it say? We have seen the glory of God through Jesus, who was what? Who was full of grace and truth. He displays the fullness of both grace and truth. You know, if you only had two words to describe God, I think those two words would be excellent choices. Grace and truth. If you want to be more like Jesus, 
be more filled with grace and truth. If you want to shine the glory of God, display the fullness of both grace and truth. You know, it worries me that so many of us professing followers of Jesus Christ don't reflect the fullness of both grace and truth. I think the truth is many of us are good at one or the other. We tend to lean heavily towards one or the other. You know, as Christians, we either tend to be too judgmental, too condemning. We love to traffic in truth. And so when we encounter sinners, sinners, we're so critical, we're so condemning. Or on the other side of it, we tend to be too gracious. In other words, too licentious, too liberal with sin. It seems that on one end, you have those who have this principle-driven desire to live in obedience to God and to his word. And on the opposite side, you have a people-driven desire to accept all and to offend none. And I'm I'm just going to give you a little warning today. I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender today. (laughs) So if you're not offended by what I have said yet, just stay with me, okay? It's probably coming. If you have issues with this sermon, please email your displeasure to our newest pastoral hire, Lester Cruzat. Um, I also want to ask you to resist the urge today as you're listening to this sermon to say to yourself, oh, this person needs to hear this message. Because I get this from time to time after a sermon, and it actually disheartens me as a pastor. Because when I, when I hear someone say that, this was the message that so-and-so needs to hear, I'm pretty certain that God did not speak to them in that moment because they were so worried about being the voice of God and the Holy Spirit for someone else. So please don't listen to this sermon for others. Please listen to it for yourself. But how do we live in such a way that reflects the fullness of both grace and truth and shines the glory of God? Not just a balance of grace and truth. I'm talking about a full measure of both, like Christ. You know, I want to read a brief story that I think captures this idea so well that is found in John chapter 8. And I want to preface this before I read this text by acknowledging there's some debate actually among scholars about whether this brief passage should be a part of the canon of Scripture. Um, And the reason is because this story doesn't actually show up in a lot of the earliest manuscripts uh, of John's Gospel. And so some scholars, their theory is that this, um, this was actually an oral tradition that was passed down for some time and then it made its way into some of the later manuscripts. But I think it's fair to say that the debate doesn't really center around whether this actually happened, whether these events actually occurred. So I don't think this issue devalues the power or the point of this story. I'm convinced that this did happen, and I do think this passage captures so well what it means to walk in the fullness of grace and truth. And so let's read it together. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman who was caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teach her. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin 
be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. You know, at this point in Jesus' ministry, things are starting to get really heated for him. The religious powers that be, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they're beginning to really realize how much of a threat that Jesus was to them and to their way of life. And in the previous chapter, in John 7, they, they hire these temple guards to, to, to have him arrested. They want to take Jesus down. And there's this, this debate and there's this division growing among the people and the Pharisees and the chief priests. He's become being quite popular as he performs these miracles. And he has this you know, incredible teaching. And there's this debate among all these people. Is he a prophet? Is, is he demon-possessed? Is he the Messiah? How can this country bumpkin from Galilee be the Messiah? This is the debate that's going on right before what we just read here in chapter 8. And this debate kind of continues into chapter 8. And after failing to arrest him, we're told that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, are now trying to trap him. And they serendipitously, they find a woman who has committed adultery. She is caught in the act. And they quickly, they hatch this foolproof plan to take Jesus down. You know, they know Jesus is gracious. They know he's merciful. And they know that he has many followers that are largely made up of these very renowned sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the like. And now they found the perfect test with this adulterer. Would Jesus violate his own conscience and condemn her, casting her on her shame along with many of his disciples? You know, to the teachers of the law, this is a no-brainer. This is an open and shut case. They have witnesses. No one can dispute that she has sinned. Or would Jesus exonerate her, violating the law of Moses that every self-respecting Jew sought to live by? How is Jesus going to wiggle his way out of this one? You know, I think it's a bit conspicuous that there is no man here that is also being brought out to the temple courts. It's only this woman. since It takes two to commit adultery, which I think only reveals that the Pharisees, they're not really interested in justice here, are they? they they're seeking to shout down and to shame Jesus and his followers in a very public way. And they present her in this way, at the temple courts, at the height of the festival season. And no doubt, everyone that had been there, there would have been a lot of people there that day, would have stopped to see what would happen next. And I love how Jesus responds. In the midst of this mob scene, with all the anger and the vitriol and the noise around him, he just stoops down to write on the ground. He will not stoop down to their level. He waits for the anticipation to build. 
And all around him is just these voices. Tell us, teacher, what should we do? Surely you know. Enlighten us. And you could just see them just rubbing their hands with glee. Oh, we got him. He's about to get canceled. And after this goes on for some time, Jesus finally looks up. And he speaks this one unforgettable sentence. He says, let you who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he goes right back to writing on the ground again. (laughs) And what happens next is nothing short of amazing. These men who were just a moment ago shouting in anger and in glee now have their heads down. And one by one, they quietly walk away. Notice here how Jesus handles this. Instead of shouting them down, instead of shaming them in a very public way as they sought to do with him, he just goes back to writing on the ground. He doesn't even look at them. You know, it's, it's a mystery what Jesus was actually writing on the ground that day. There was some who surmised that Jesus was writing the names and the sins of each Pharisee that was there that day. Can you imagine, like, Jesus writing your sin? You're like, oh, I better get out of here. <laughs> But I don't think that's what happened. I think Jesus does the opposite of what they attempted to do. Jesus gives them the dignity of allowing them to come to their own self-discovery of their own sin in their own time. And that's grace. That's the fullness of grace. And I love this little detail given to us about how these guys exit the temple courts. It says the older ones first. The older ones first. If this story were made up, I don't think it would include a detail like that, right? And yet it's a detail that's worthy of reflection. You know, the older we get, the more we realize just how broken and how sinful we really are. And the truth is, if we lived for a thousand years, we still would not be able to fully grasp the extent of our sinfulness. Life has a way of exposing just how sinful we are. Our repeated failures, our continuous struggle with sin, even our habits of sin, they expose our constant need for mercy. And the longer we live life, the more we know that this is true. This this is why it was the older ones first. And the irony here is that the one person there that day who could have condemned this woman, who could have thrown a stone, there was only one person there who was without sin and who lived a perfect life. And yet, what did he choose? He chooses mercy. I wish we in the church could better model Christ's example here. We are so quick to judge and to condemn others who sin. And so many of us often reserve a special judgment for those who sin differently from us, who struggle with different sins that we don't struggle with. And what we lack in empathy, we unleash in condemnation. And I think this is especially true when we talk about things like homosexuality and gender issues and the like. And I think the church in America especially has to come to terms with the fact that while Jesus openly welcomed the worst of sinners into his fold and he made them feel safe in his presence, the church, his bride, largely has not. And that's, that's a shame. 
That's not Christ-like. That does not honor the glory of God. This does not display a full measure of grace. It is devoid of grace. And we often justify this kind of behavior by saying, well, we need to preach and we need to teach the truth. That's true, but truth without love destroys. Truth without love will always destroy. So let us grow in the fullness of grace. Let us be more like Christ. Let us reveal God's glory in being more like Christ. I told you I was going to be an equal opportunity offender, so if you haven't been offended yet, you're probably coming now. I think it also needs to be said that there are many in the church in America who under the banner of love have sacrificed truth on the altar of grace. But we must have both, grace and truth. God's love demonstrates both. And in our desire to appear less bigoted and more open-minded, especially in this post-Christian world, I fear in our desire to cast as wide a net as possible, we dismiss Jesus' warnings that the gate is actually very narrow and few will enter it. And we succumb to the temptation to compromise the truth of God's word and we are unwilling to call a spade a spade or a sin a sin, all in the name of love. But you'll notice Jesus does not do this. This story could have easily ended with Jesus saying, woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go in peace. He doesn't say that, does he? Jesus' last declaration to this woman is, go now and leave your life of sin. Leave it. Follow me. Choose me. How many of us today would cut out that last line and stop short of it? How many of us bend the truth of God's word so that we don't have to call a sin a sin? How many of us have the courage to gently and lovingly tell a friend who is living a life of sin to leave it behind? You know, we live in a day and age where we celebrate sin more than we grieve it, or at least tolerate it. And why is this wrong? Why is this unloving, even if it is a sin that does not harm anyone else? Because it's a lie. Because the world has redefined sin as being only that which harms another person. But sin is not only that which harms others. Sin ultimately harms your relationship with God, your fellowship with God, the one you were created to know and to love, which ultimately harms you. And if you truly believe as a follower of Christ that the path to abundant life Meaning, pur- meaning and purpose, identity and security and happiness is ultimately only found in Christ and Christ alone, then why would we encourage people to choose a life that moves them away from that path and that may lead to destruction? It is not loving to another person to encourage living a life of sin that is ultimately harmful to their soul and to their union with Christ. And that is why in the end, Jesus tells this woman to leave this life behind, to follow him a better, truer way.
As I said earlier, truth without love destroys. But let me add this, love without truth deceives. I don't know who to credit this to. I've heard this, but it's been said, and I I love it. Truth without love destroys. Love without truth deceives. Neither is truly loving. Love without truth deceives us into thinking that we are okay when we are not, that we can have it all, that we can pursue our selfish ambitions and our vain conceit our flesh and our carnal pleasures and still live in harmony with the Almighty God and still be at peace with God? Why celebrate anything that moves us away from the deeper love for Christ? Why commend anything that encourages an identity apart from Christ? How is this loving? This is not biblical love. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 13, the defining chapter on love, it not only says that love is patient and kind, bearing and hoping all things, which is the essence of grace, right? But it also says this, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's interesting here. It lines up wrongdoing or sin against truth. That is not love. Truth without love destroys, but love without truth deceives. They are both to go hand in hand. Truth and love, grace and truth. Biblical love is both of these things. Jesus was both of these things in full measure. And this is why he had the courage to save the adulterer from certain stoning as well as the compassion to lift up her head and speak truth in love. I don't think I've ever quoted Rick Warren in a sermon before, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in this quote. I want to say... um, Read here, it says, our culture, he says, has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone, you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. You know, Jesus modeled for us how to treat people, all people, with dignity and respect. How to first meet their felt needs, whatever it is, emotional, physical, whether it's for dignity or acceptance, whether it's for food and water. But you'll notice as you read the Gospels that he never stopped there. He never stopped at just meeting their felt needs. He always offered up himself as the ultimate answer because he knew he was exactly what we need, all of us. So when the woman at the well says, Sir, give me this water, this living water, or when the hungry multitudes that are following him says, Give us this bread always, he would do so. He would meet them where they are. He would love them and show them compassion. He would meet their felt needs, but he would never stop there. He would always lead them to himself. And this is exactly why he declares himself as the living water. He declares himself as the bread of life. He declares himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the the Father. No one can come to God apart from him. And we all have our wants and we all have our needs, and that can lead us to desperate things. But Jesus knows exactly what we truly need. We need him. We need more of him. Always. 
let us lead people to him. Not our man-made solutions for this broken world, not our half-baked attempts at love, but let us walk in the fullness of grace and truth and shine the glory of Christ to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look into your word, we see your son. We see your glory shining forth through the life and the ministry and the words and the compassion and the heart of your son. Jesus, who walked in fullness of grace and truth, who was so filled with compassion and yet so willing to speak truth in love, and who gave up himself ultimately as the solution to our sin, to our condemnation. We praise you. We worship you and we thank you. Let us now walk in the fullness of that grace and truth. Show us, Lord, all the ways in which we have fallen short. Show us all the ways in which we have neglected one or the other, walking in grace or walking in the fullness of truth. Reveal to us by the power of your Spirit, Lord, how much we need you, how we are all in need of your mercy. We pray these things in your Son's precious name.